As Debbie mentioned, we are back in Matthew chapter 22, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to chapter 22, or your electronic device, you can do that as well. And as we come back to our study there, we're going to, we continue to walk with Jesus in his last week of his earthly life um, here on earth. And we find that the tension and the intensity rising as the Pharisees and the Sadducees get more and more desperate to discredit him among the Jews that were there. On his last Wednesday... Just uh, two days before he'll be crucified, question after question has been coming to him. And it's interesting that with each question, the multitude is getting more and more amazed at his answers and what he is saying. On the other hand, the religious leaders are getting angrier and angrier because Jesus keeps uh, hitting, hitting them very powerfully, especially after having been told with three parables back to back that God is going to reject them and he's going to welcome in another group of people who will be grateful for what God has done. So this brings us to our passage here in Matthew 22. We're going to start at verse 23, if you have that in front of you. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Now you'd be in, in today's situation, you think, huh, something's going on here with his wife. That she'd be a prime suspect about something going on. So that happens with seven of them. Finally, the woman died. <laughs> the woman herself died. Now then, and this is, they're, they're just sharing, um, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. We're going to stop there a minute. Uh, let me set the stage here so we can better understand this question that the Sadducees are raising. Now, there's always been kind of a fascination about life after death, all down through history of mankind, uh, a re- resurrection of some kind. Um, a for- former Yale University professor by the name of James Dwight Dana one time said, I cannot believe that God would create man and then desert him at the grave. There's always been a sense in mankind that there's got to be something more, something after this. In an ancient book entitled Egyptian Book of the Dead, read that sometime, you would find that that's actually filled with a lot of hope about life after death, about a resurrected life. For example, in the tomb of Pharaoh Cheops, 
sealed over 5,000 years ago, some kind of a solar boat was discovered in, in the tomb, which he had built, apparently, so that he could sail through the heavens in his next life. In the ancient Greek religion, very often a coin was placed inside the mouth of a corpse so that he could pay their fare across the mystic river of death into the land of immortal life. Some American Indians in the past used to bury a pony and a bow and an arrow with a warrior so that he would be able to ride and hunt in the happy hunting grounds. The Norsemen apparently often provided a horse to be buried with a dead hero so that he could still have his triumphant ride in immortality. So that concept has been there. And if you study any religion of the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, so many others, there's always a teaching of some kind about life after death. The Jews were no different. It was part of the Jewish thinking that there was life after death. You find it in many of their own ancient writings. But the resurrection is confirmed, best of all, to the Jews because God himself affirms it. One of the most often used texts by the Jews is found in Psalm 16, verse 9. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Obviously, God is saying there's something more. So the Jews believe strongly in the resurrection. All of them, except one group. And they were the Sadducees that Matthew writes about here in our passage. In verse 23, we read, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with this question. Now, the Sadducees were at odds in many ways with the Jewish culture. They were at odds with all the Jewish theology. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And it's interesting that every time they're defined for us in Scripture, they're defined with this statement. They don't believe in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 23, verse 8, where they're mentioned for the last time actually in Scriptures, Luke writes... The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So he was differentiating these two groups. So there was a constant heated debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were probably the most despised group of of the Jews. They were the upper class snobs, if you will. Uh, the aristocrats of that day, in fact, the chief priests, the high priests, the, the other noblest of the priests, they, they were all Sadducees. And the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body, were Sadducees. So they had a, a, a lot of power, they had a great deal of influence, they had great prestige, and they were also wealthy because they were the ones that controlled all those temple concessions, those money changers, and, and the buying and selling that, was, that took place in the temple courts. They were also hated because their theology was contrary to the rest. They were also pro-Rome, which the Jews hated, because that's where they got their power from. The, The Romans allowed the Sadducees to go ahead and run things, and they were even more resented because of that. 
Now, religiously, it's interesting to find out that they believe that only the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, were really, truly the Word of God. And that the rest of the Old Testament, yeah, it was there, but that's more of the commentary on Moses, on the first five books. And here's what's interesting for our discussion here today. Since according to them, Moses never talked about the resurrection of the dead in his five books, to them, there was none. So they denied the afterlife. That's always what they came back to with the Pharisees when they argued about it. Give us an answer from Moses. Show me in the first five books of the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament there, where does it talk about the resurrection? And the Pharisees were always stymied. They couldn't come up with an answer. So they've got social animosity. They've got political animosity, the Sadducees do. They've got the theological animosity going. And there's one thing they agree on, and that's the fact that they've all got to get rid of Jesus. That's where they were at. And up until this point, the Pharisees have failed miserably with their questioning. And we've looked at that over the past weeks. Every time they come up with a question, Jesus kind of shot them down. So now it's the, Pharisees, it's the Sadducees' turn. So that, that here, here they come. It says on, the, on that same day, that would be the Wednesday before his crucifixion. And they've got this question. And, and the intent of their question, again, is to discredit the, uh, Jesus in the eyes of the Jews and the multitudes that are following Jesus. During the vast majority of Jesus' ministry, the Sadducees really could have really cared less about him. They they just kind of let him alone, let let the Pharisees and all the rest of them fuss. They didn't believe in a coming Messiah. Um, They they were busy making money and, and lording their power over everybody there. Jesus hadn't really been an issue for them until he did. Until he did. The day before this conversation, Jesus comes in and cleansed the temple. Who did that hit? That hit the Sadducees. That hit their pocketbooks. He disrupted their business. He had invaded their territory, and now they were going to get involved. And on top of that, the crowds were growing, and they were hailing him as king. Remember, as he came into Jerusalem, uh, Hosanna. This is all signs of a revolution brewing, which would then make the Romans step in because the Sadducees couldn't take care of him. And then they, the, the Sadducees, would be ousted out of their position of authority and all the finances that come with it. So they're upset. And that's why the Sadducees stepped in and tried to discredit Jesus here among the rest of the Jews. And this is described in John chapter 11, starting in verse 47. Listen, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? Okay, Pharisees and Sadducees getting together. It's, it's, it's not, not a common thing. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's the issue. That's the point. So they discuss the issue, and verse 53 gives us their conclusion. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So, All these questions that Jesus has been answering, that have been coming to Jesus uh, in in this last week here, has all been part and parcel of this plot 
to take Jesus' life, to, to get him uh, arrested, killed. So they come to Jesus and ask him a question that they had no doubt asked the Pharisees many times, for which they had not given any kind of answer. So they're pretty confident in this question that they're going to bring, bring to Jesus. They're, they're going to get him here. So here's their brilliant question, starting in verse 24, and they start out by setting, the, setting up the scenario. Teacher, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they didn't really believe that he was a great teacher, but they were going to honor him with that title. Teacher, they said, Moses, of course, right? Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, that's actually true. That's, that's in Scripture. Um, it's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And the law says that if a, if a man uh, marries a woman and he has no male child and he dies, then the man's name and family is not going to be passed on. That was very important in the culture at the time. So an unmarried brother is to take over his widow, marry her, and raise up a child. And the firstborn of that uh, union then would belong to the dead brother. And so his family name would continue. So that was the law. And God gave that law in those times to preserve in the land that that tribal inheritance preserves the families. It was all about the heritage. It was always all about maintaining the 12 tribes that God had put in place and their land and their territory and their heritage and maintaining a Messianic line. A beautiful illustration of that is the illustration of Ruth. If we remember correctly, Elimelech had two sons, and Ruth married one of them, and that son died, and his name was Obed, and he died without having a child. Then along comes Boaz into her life, and Boaz took her as his wife and raised up a child. Now, why is that significant? Because the line of Elimelech was a line of the Messiah. It's important. So keeping the family and the tribal lines going was very important. And that was a law well known to the people. And then the Sadducees come up with this extreme example. Okay, here's a law. Now, now, let me give you an example. What are you going to do with this one? Starting in verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose life, wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? That was a gotcha moment in their minds. Because if there's a resurrection, which they don't believe, but everybody else believes, including Jesus, you end up with polygamy in heaven. <gasps> Can't have that. They know that Jesus believes in the resurrection, just as the Pharisees did, and they they had stumped the Pharisees over and over again with this issue. So they were probably smugly standing there, kind of, okay, let's let's, let's see what you're going to say. I'd love to hear your answer on this one. They were just really pleased with himself, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, verse 29, you are in error. These are the Sadducees. These are the highest of the high. You are in error. The Greek word he uses is planao which means to roam from the truth, to go astray, to wander, to be deceived. We get the word planet from that word. It means you are causing yourself to wander. You are leading yourself astray with the truth. 
If you remember in the small book of Jude, verse 13, he describes the false prophets and teachers as wandering stars. Same word, same concept. And then Jesus gives a reason. Because, he says, you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Again, there he was in their face. He hit them where they felt they were the strongest. Then he explains how ignorant (laughs) they, they were in verse 30. At the resurrection, so he first verifies that there will be a resurrection. At the resurrection, it's going to happen. So that's their first error. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So as far as the issue, it's a non-issue. It's a non-issue. No polygamy because they will, there, there will be no marriage relationships in heaven. Why? Because Jesus said they will be like the angels in heaven. He didn't say they will be angels. I've I've heard that phrase different times. Oh, daddy became an angel. Mommy became an angel. We have to be really careful on how we describe what takes place uh, after someone passes. But that we were going to be like the angels. What does that mean? What are angels like? Well, they're spiritual beings. They're eternal beings who do not marry and do not procreate. Why not? Because they have a fixed number. And since none of them ever die, you don't need to keep multiplying angels. In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. There was a reason for that. We needed to fill the earth. And then once sin came into the world, people began to die, and so you need to continue to multiply. But not so in heaven. Things are going to be different there. There will be no longer any need for marriage. Our intimate relationship is going to be with our Father in heaven. And there will be no longer be a need for that among people. Everybody will be equally close to each other and equally close to the Lord. That's why Luke in his parallel passage says we will be equal to the angels. Equally deathless, equally spiritual, equally glorified, equally eternal, who no longer have any need of procreation. The point Jesus is making is that the Sadducees are showing nothing but their ignorance about the reality of heaven. And then he says... You're not only ignorant about the power of God, but you're ignorant about Scriptures. You're even ignorant about the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the ones that they thought they were so brilliant about. Watch watch what he says in verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, now that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about this whole marriage thing, and he already just kind of uh, wiped that out. About the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Of course we have. That's our five books. We know those five books. Have you not read... Remember, in their minds, Moses never said anything about the resurrection. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, folks, that was a mic drop statement. Boom! And I think the significance of that statement often goes right over our heads. Why was it so significant? The very next verse says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? (laughs) What did he say? He just said, God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. First of all, it's a quote from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, one of the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. 
So he's giving them an answer from the very books they feel are the actual Word of God. Now you may be saying, yeah, but what does that statement have anything to do with the resurrection? The reason that is such a strong resurrection, life after death statement, is because he used the Greek word ego I me, I am, present tense. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. The argument here is an argument of verb tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. You see, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham was already dead. Jacob was already dead. Isaac was already dead. How then can he say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is an exact quote from Moses. This is, something, this is not something new that Jesus made up here. In fact, God says that at least six times, Genesis chapter 6, Genesis uh, chapter 28, uh, three times in Exodus 3, another time in Exodus 4. God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, and they're already dead. Jesus' point is made at the end of verse 32, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's what's significant. So if God says, I am the God of these, I am the God of these people, they must be what? Alive after death. And they got it just with that statement. They didn't have to have all this explanation. They got it with that statement. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Wow. Even the scripturally unlearned were blown away, the multitude. It was so clear. Over in Luke chapter 20, Luke tells us that some of the teachers of the law, okay, these are Sadducees, brilliant experts, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. <laughs> well said. You know, this is so encouraging in a couple ways. One, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Even the verb tense. Every jot and tittle, you've heard, you've heard that. Every dotted I, every cross G, every little mark in, in, the, in the writings are important. Every word in the Bible as originally given are divinely inspired. And that's, that's why we take time sometimes to delve into the nuances of a word in Greek or a word in Hebrew. Because God used that word for a specific reason and not this word. God's word is absolutely reliable for every aspect of our life. The second thing that's really encouraging is that we can be absolutely sure that there is life after death. A wonderful, glorious, amazing life with Christ for all of eternity. You remember in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for, me, for you, what's it going to do? I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me there as well, where I am. What a promise. And we're going to be talking more about that promise and when that's going to happen in a couple chapters from now in Matthew chapter 24. Now you would think that the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders would have had enough by, by now, right? Oh, Jesus keeps wiping them out. But no, their hatred and desperation seems to have no limit. 
They tried to test him politically. They tried to test him theologically. And they were going to give it one more shot to discredit him among the people. And this is their last attempt. This is their last question they bring. In fact, Mark chapter 12, verse 34, parallel passage to this event, says, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So this was it, this, this next question here. In verse 34, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. There's a couple of interesting things in this verse. It says that he silenced the Sadducees. The verb to put to silence is, is literally gagged. <laughs> he gagged them. He shut them up. It wasn't that they wanted to be silent. They had no choice. They had no comeback. They, they had nothing. It's a verb used in Mark chapter 1, verse 25 of silencing the demon. It's used also in Mark 4, 39, where Jesus silenced the storm. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, referring to the muzzling of an ox. In other words, it's an unwilling gagging. Jesus' answer was so effective, they had nothing else to say. Secondly, the fact that the Pharisees got together then to discuss their next steps I believe actually is a fulfillment of prophecy here. If you, if you look at Psalm chapter 2, which is a Messianic prophecy, uh, the, the psalmist looking ahead to the Messiah, it says in verse 1 and 2, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His, what? Anointed. Talking about the Messiah. They're banding together. The rulers are banding together against his anointing. So Psalm 2 was looking to the cross and said that they would gather together against him. And that's exactly what was happening here in Matthew 22. And out of their discussion, they chose one of their most learned of men, a theological lawyer. One of them, which is a Pharisee himself, an expert in the law. Another term that's often used is a scribe. Now, usually when I think of scribe, I, I think of like a glorified secretary who can uh, do dictation. But a scribe was a whole lot more than that. Not only did they copy the law, but they were authorities on the law. They knew the law. They interpreted the, the law. They taught the law. He was literally an expert in the law. So he came on behalf of the other Pharisees, and it says he tested Jesus. He tested Jesus with a question. And the idea, of course, is that they wanted Jesus to fail. That's the testing that is coming. Now, something to keep in mind as we look at this next question is that not only did the Sadducees hold up Moses as the greatest of the Old Testament, now they, they limited it to the first five books, the Pharisees also held Moses up as the greatest in the Old Testament as well. Moses was a number one hero for all of them. It was Moses who, who spoke face to face with God. It was Moses that God chose to give the Ten Commandments to. It was Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses was the man for all of them. And many of them were, had believed, or the rumor had gone around, and they, they came to this conclusion that Jesus was attacking Moses' teachings. Another reason why they were so against Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, if you remember our, when we were way back in Matthew chapter 5, going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, Moses' five books, or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. The, the, the Greek says jot and tittle. That's where the jot and tittle comes from. 
None of those will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You see, he knew they were going to have issues with what he was teaching. And so he let them know that that's not what he was doing. He was not going against that. But they decided to believe what they wanted to believe. Isn't that the way with so many, so, so many of us? We're gonna, this is what I believe. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to believe this. And they believed that Jesus was trying to supersede Moses, to give a, teach, a teaching perhaps greater than Moses, a different teaching beyond Moses. So, that, so they come, and the expert of the law asks this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is something that they had discussed often. This is probably one of their favorite discussion topics. I, I can imagine uh, when, I, when I was in seminary, go, go to the cafeteria, and you got the seminary students in there debating and discussing. They just love discussing these, these different uh, questions that were really hard to come up with a, with a solid answer for. So this is one of their favorite to- topics. And according to the history of Jewish law, they claim that there are 613 separate laws in the Book of Moses. Moses, books of Moses, five, because there were 613 separate Hebrew letters in the Ten Commandments. Why that made a difference, I don't know, but 613 must mean there are 613 separate laws as well. And they divided those into two parts. They said there were 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body. I haven't found why they came up with that, <laughs> that, that number, to 248. In addition to that, they divided, uh, excuse me, and then there were the 365 negative laws, 365, one for every day of the year. Then in addition to that, they divided those 613 laws into light laws and heavy laws. Light laws were semi-optional. The heavy laws were binding. In Matthew 23, uh, verse 4, Jesus refers to this when he says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. He's referring to all those heavy laws that they are imposing. So Jesus is saying, which one of those 613 laws is the most important? Which is the greatest? Or perhaps in their mind they were thinking, or is there a different law than those that Moses that you're coming up with that it's even more important? They'd probably rather have him say something like that. Look at his response in verse 37. Without any hesitation whatsoever, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What an answer. What an answer. You know where he got that? He quoted Moses. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He quoted their hero. Not only did he quote Moses, but he quoted the most familiar thing that that Moses ever wrote. And they they call it the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That was the most familiar uh, scripture in all of the Old Testament for them. He's saying, I'm, I'm here to tell you the same thing that Moses told you. Love the Lord your God. The Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6.5 for loving God is the word ahav, which refers primarily to the love of will, the love of the mind, the love of action, rather than the love of feeling and emotion. It's the highest kind of love. It's the Hebrew equivalent of agape love that we here have heard so much about. 
So he says to them what they already knew, that the number one thing is to love God with your whole being, heart, soul, and mind. And in Mark's account, Jesus added, and strength. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We are to love the Lord with all of our whole being, and we need to put our strength and our energy and our effort into doing that. The word heart basically is, is the uh, Hebrew understanding, is the core of the person's identity. You remember in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, Above all else, guard your what? Guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything comes out of the heart. The Hebrew's understanding is the intellect, which produces the thoughts, produces the words, produces the actions. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Then the word soul used here refers uh, best to the emotional part of our being. For example, in Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then mind refers to the will, to volition. It has to do with purpose or, or with our intention. And then Mark adds the word strength, which is all of our physical capabilities as well. So it's an, it's an intelligent love. It's, it's a feeling love. It's a willing love. It's a serving love. They all come together to love God, to love God with a total being, all that we are. You see, God is not looking for people who are going through religious rituals. God is not looking for people who on the outside can go through all of the motions. There's a lot of people that can go through the motions, a lot of people that can say the right words. God wants people who love him with their whole being. And just as he loved us enough to give his son, we're to love him enough to give ourselves. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And he is now asking that we give ourselves to him. The Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. You see, they, they, they believed in the existence of God. That, that, that wasn't an issue. They, they believed that. But they didn't love him that way. He was not their Lord. He was not their king. Scriptures tell us that even the demons believe. And what do they do? <laughs> they, they tremble. Why? Because they don't love him. They don't believe, they don't serve him. He's not their king. So this was an indictment of the Pharisees. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus lays, lays into them saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Seven times! Why? Because they say they love God, but their actions show otherwise. You see, We've got to have both. Actions often speak louder than words, don't they? We can say a lot of stuff. But what about our, our actions? And starting in Exodus chapter 20 and going throughout Scripture, that concept is there. In Exodus 20, verse 6, it tells us that God shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yes, he wanted them to keep his commandments, but that, that, was, that was the outward. That was the external. What was the inside? It was the love. That's where it has, to, it has to start. Love me because I love you and I have mercy on you. I want you to love me back. The same command is repeated in Deuteronomy and in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1.5, Lord, the God of heaven, the, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
So when Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, if you love me, keep my commandments, this was not a new teaching. This was not a new teaching. That's what God has been saying all along. And why do we love him? 1 John 4, 19, we love him because why? He first loved us. It's so easy to love my wife because she loves me. In fact, as we, as followers of Christ, we, we, we're defined that way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. The last verse of Ephesians says this, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. He's describing the believers in Jesus Christ, those who have an undying love. What kind of love is that? Well, if we just look at scriptures uh, quickly, it's a love that meditates on God's glory and power and might from Psalm, uh, Psalms 18. It's a love that trusts in God's great power, Psalm 31. It's a love that seeks fellowship with God, Psalm 63. It's a love that secures a peace of the soul, Psalm 119. Um, it's, a, it's a love that is sensitive to how God feels, Psalm 69. It's a love that... Uh, it's a lo- it, it's a love that loves what God loves, Psalm 119 again, three different times. Um, it's a love that loves what God hates, excuse me, hates what God hates. <laughs> you don't love what God hates. Psalm 97, it's a love that grieves over sin, Matthew 26. It's a love that rejects worldliness, 1 John chapter 5. It's a love that longs to be with Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's all that this love is. But more than all of that, this love is a love that manifests itself in obedience. If you love me, obey my commands. One author wrote, You show me someone who doesn't have any interest in keeping his commandments, and I'll show you someone who doesn't love him. I'll show you someone who doesn't know him. How can we love like that? But it all begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. And as we accept Jesus Christ into our life, as our Lord, as our Savior, then the Holy Spirit is given to us, and the Holy Spirit then empowers us and fills us with that love for Christ, that love of Christ for the Father and for those around us. And then Jesus gives them a bonus in this question. He tells them what the second greatest commandment is. And it follows the same track. It's actually an outgrowth of the first commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that flows out of a love for God. You can't have a love for your neighbor if you don't have a love for God. When you truly love God, you love people, right? That's, that's, That's the idea. And the Pharisees didn't do that. They bound heavy burdens on the people. They used people. They abused people. We're going to see more of that in the next chapter, in chapter 23. What kind of love are we talking about here? Well, even for the people, it's a love of purpose. It's a love of intention. It's a love of the will. It's a love of action. The same kind of love. In other words, I take care of somebody else the same way I take care of me. The actions should proceed out of my love. One commentator said, Christianity isn't that complicated. Neither is Judaism. It just says, love God and love people. That's it. If you love God, you'll do what he says. If you love people, you'll do what they need. That's all. That's life for us. That's the whole thing. That's the whole kit and caboodle. 
And that's what Jesus told them and is telling us in verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything. Everything else God said in the Old Testament hangs on these two things. If you just love God with all of your being and love everybody as yourself, you don't need any more rules. It takes care of all of it. Why? Because everything else is just then a definition or explanation of those two. I mean, the fact that there are laws in Scripture against murder indicates that there are people that don't love each other out there. The fact that there are laws in the Bible against idolatry means that there are people that don't love God the way they ought to love God, and they've got something else in mind that they're loving. If I love God perfectly, I'll have no other idols. If I love God perfectly, I won't take His name in vain. I love people as I ought to love people, <laughs> I'm not going to kill them. I'm not going to steal from them. I'm not going to covet what they have. I'm not going to be unkind to them. I'm not going to gossip about them. I'm not going to slander them or hurt them in any way. So you've got the point. Everything is summed up in that. Paul made this clear as well. Didn't you remember Romans chapter 13? Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, Paul says. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, Paul says. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Love the Lord your God. That that takes care of the first five commandments in, in the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself takes care of the other five. And Jesus gave this answer. We find this actually in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting with verse 32. We see that the expert in the law was so impressed with Jesus' answer. Well said, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He got it. Then Mark says, when Jesus saw that he, this expert in the law, had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So close. Why? Because if you believe this, you're not far. But believing is one step short. Believing is here. Trusting and giving our lives is the rest of our being. You see, God wants you to take that step of loving Him, of opening your heart and saying, I want to come in the name of Jesus. I want Jesus to be in my life. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want you to forgive my unlovingness in my life. And I want you to enable me to love as I ought to love. I want to be able to love God, and I want to be able to love others. And from then on, no one dared ask Him any more questions. Ripley's Believe It or Not. You remember that, those books? As a kid, I used to go through those. Fascinating. It says that the longest love letter ever written was written in 1875. It was written by a painter from Paris by the name of Marcel de Leclure. 
addressed to Magdalena de Villeray. And he was so in love with her that he wanted to write Je t'aime, which is I love you in French, a thousand times for every year. So 1875, 1875 times 1,000. So he wrote Je t'aime, I love you, 1,875,000 times. Now he was no foolish person, so he hired a secretary to do that. However, he didn't want to diminish the importance of that expression of his love, so he didn't just say, okay, copy that a million times. But instead, he dictated that phrase, 1,875,000 times. And as he said it each time, she wrote it down, 1,875,000 times. Jackie's looking at Roy. Roy, you got your homework. (laughs) Ripley says, never was love made manifest by any great, uh, by as great an expenditure of time and effort. Hmm. It's a nice thought. Not true. Never was love manifested by such a great expenditure of time and effort. Listen, in the first place, God loved us in a way that couldn't be measured when he gave his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, when we love God back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we love God more than that guy ever loved that woman. And we express it not by writing something a million eight hundred and seventy-five thousand times, but by a life of obedience, showing him that we love him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for your love, amazing love. We sing that wonderful hymn. How can it be? How can it be? But it was. You loved us so much that you gave of yourself. You gave your one and only son who had no sin, never thought a sinful thought, never responded in a sinful way, never acted out any sinful action. And he came and took our sin. Amazing love. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts this morning. If there is one, whether it's here, whether it's coming through Facebook, that one that hasn't yet given their life to Jesus and said, oh, thank you for that love. Thank you for loving me so much that you give your son to die on that cross, to shed his blood, to have his body broken for me. Forgive me for my sins. I receive Jesus as my Lord. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak strongly. For those of us, Father, who have perhaps known you for years and years and years, and yet there's times when that perfect love that we've been talking about isn't really super evident in our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would prick our consciences, that your Holy Spirit would convict us we would ask for your forgiveness, and then, Father, we ask that you would fill us 
with that love of Jesus Christ so that automatically, and it's not like we're trying to be obedient, trying to do all the right things in all the right ways and, the, and say the right things, but because of the, our love for you fills us, you, you transform our lives so that the outpouring of that love is, is just almost automatically that we're in step with the Holy Spirit and we're being obedient to you because that's how you have transformed us. Father, we thank you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.